Romans 13, verses 1 through 7, I'll be reading from the New King James Version. Uh, Hear now the word of God. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister, an avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore, you must be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render, therefore, to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due, customs to whom customs, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God abides forever. And let's pray, asking the Lord to teach us from his word. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for your word, which is perfect and true, that is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. We're thankful that you have given to us a standard that is inspired and inerrant and infallible. And we pray that as we consider these things, you would teach us. Give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that are open and responsive to your message. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. There's an old tradition to preach an election sermon to prepare for a coming election. And so if you look at the old times and the colonial days, there would be an election service or a sermon or a special occasional message prior to uh, election or big event. And these sermons gave an opportunity to look at what the Bible says about government and Christian duties. It wasn't about parties and issues and candidates and politics, rather about what the Bible says concerning government and our obligations. Romans 13 is a famous portion of scripture dealing with civil government. And so I want to begin by looking here at principles of authority. Principles of authority from Romans 13. And first, in verses 1 and 2, God ordains authority. The term authority or authorities is used frequently in these verses, five times different forms of the word in verses 1 through 3. And so if you read through those verses, Paul repeatedly references authorities. This term is translated as authorities or powers, depending on the version that you have. It is not necessarily a reference to civil government or rulers, although it frequently is. 
in Acts 5.4, for instance, when Ananias is in trouble for saying that he had brought the whole amount of the sale of his property, the apostles said that when the property was in your own authority or in your own power, thus a reference, I suppose, to private ownership of property. This term is used by Jesus in the Great Commission. All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. God ordains authorities, and society has many authorities. Theologians talk about spheres of authority. These can include the state, the church, the family, vocations, and God has established authority in each of those spheres or areas. In the Bible, we can see examples of rulers and citizens and husbands and wives and parents and children and masters and slaves, for instance, in Ephesians 5 and 6. There are in these spheres of authority different jurisdictions and obligations and responsibilities. And sometimes these spheres of authority have overlapping jurisdictions and sometimes there are competitions. So in 1647, when the Westminster Assembly of Divines crafted a confession and sent it to Scotland for ratification, the Scots looked at the language about the civil magistrate in chapter 31, section 2, and thought that there might be too much authority given to the civil magistrate. And so the Scots said that the church always had the power to call a church assembly from the intrinsic power received from Christ. In other words, Christ had established his church, and the church had the freedom and power to convene itself in an assembly. In short, the state cannot coerce the church. God establishes order. By establishing authorities, God establishes order and ruling powers. It seems to me clear that God does not want rebellion, insubordination, chaos, and anarchy. We live in a rebellious and insubordinate age. Maybe it's a holdover from the 60s. I don't know. Probably. But we live in a rebellious age. Our age is anti-authoritarian and antinomian. Authority and order is God's plan for stability, and that is a blessing of God. Now, in saying that God ordains authority, as I'd also add that no earthly authority is perfect. And the people in Rome to whom Paul sent this letter understood that full, full well. Roman emperors were not perfect. Rome persecuted Christians. Rome martyred Christians. The martyrs included Paul and Peter. 
Sometimes parents who have authority over their children misuse that authority. They're not perfect. No earthly authority is perfect, but God ordains authorities. That's my first point. Second, rulers are God's servants, verses 3 through 6. The term ruler used here is usually used of civil magistrates. But if you look further in our verses, you'll find that there are other terms used for rulers, such as deacons. Twice in verse 4, the term deacon is used. It's translated servant or typically servant or minister, but it's a term that we usually think of in a church context. The civil magistrate or ruler is God's servant or deacon to do whatever it is that God authorizes him to do. In verse 6, there's another term that's used. It is most literally translated as liturgist. It is a term that usually means servant or civil servant, but it has religious-sounding language. The point is, is that rulers are God's servants or God's ministers. You'll notice that they have a twofold function. They are to praise the good, verse 3. That's the positive. And second, they are to punish the evil, verses 3 and 4. And that's the negative part of that power. They are to be a terror to bad guys. Praise the good, punish the evil, that's the function of rulers. Paul also tells us that rulers, civil magistrates, bear the sword. They don't bear the sword in vain. And we talk about the power of the sword, we talk about a twofold power. One is defense, to protect us from bad guys, uh, invaders, during time of war. And second, the power of the sword for justice to punish bad guys, which includes, ultimately, the power of capital punishment. Rulers are God's servants. Unfortunately, our rulers are oftentimes eager to do what they have no sanction to do. Redistribute wealth, make everybody happy, which they can't accomplish anyways. And they aren't very eager to do specifically what they are commissioned to do, which is to punish the bad guys and bear the sword and make sure that miscreants don't run away with our society. God ordains authorities. Rulers are God's servants. Third, Christians must be subject to lawful authority. And this point is abundantly clear in our verses. And so in verse 1, we see an opening imperative. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. And then we see a closing admonition in verse 5. Therefore, you must 
be subject, not only because of wrath, but also for conscience' sake. And so the Apostle Paul makes an appeal to his audience, and more broadly to everyone, that they would be in submission, subject to lawful authority, verses 1 and 5. And in our passage, the Apostle Paul gives reasons for that submission. It's because of divine appointment in verse 1. That's the way God set it up. That's the Lord's pleasure in creating a society. And because of its social value, in verse 4, he's God's minister to good. It is good to have a society that is orderly and stable. And also for personal consequences, verses 2 through 5, if you break the law, you'll get punished. You'll get a fine, you'll go to the pokey, whatever. If nothing else, make sure you behave yourself so you don't get in trouble with the police. And finally, you should be in submission for conscience sake in verse 5 because it is the right thing to do. And then in verse 7, Paul gives a series of Christian obligations. Christians must be subject to lawful authority, giving taxes to whom taxes are due. Benjamin Franklin said the only two things in life that are certain are death and taxes, and there's a lot of truth to that. You pay taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs are due. Fear to whom fear is due. Honor to whom honor is due. All of these are calls to submission in various contexts. Look with me at 1 Peter 2, because we find a similar passage dealing with a Christian's obligations. 1 Peter 2, starting with verse 13. 1 Peter 2, 13. Therefore, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme, or to governors, or to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men, as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Now you notice that Peter's admonition here in 1 Peter 2 is almost exactly the same as Paul's admonition in, first, in Romans 13. And then Paul goes on, uh, Peter goes on from there to talk about masters and families, husbands and wives. Now I know that someone's going to say, what do you mean by lawful authority? Christians must be subject 
to lawful authority, what exactly does that mean? There is this famous example of the apostles in Acts 5, verse 29, where they were scolded about preaching the gospel and told to stop it. And the response that they give is this, Acts 5, verse 29, but Peter and the other apostles answered and said, we ought to obey God rather than men. So in the charge to stop preaching the gospel, the apostles collectively say, we can't do that. In other words, the obligation that we have to God supersedes the unlawful demand of the civil magistrates or the ecclesiastical rulers. Reformation theologians always argued that one's duty to God was superior to the unlawful demands of fallible men. Acts 5.29 had a really famous impact on American Presbyterian history. The first famous Presbyterian evangelist in the North American colonies, what became the United States in Virginia, was Francis McAmey. He was an evangelist missionary here in the late 1600s, and um, he operated in eastern Virginia, and he went up on a preaching tour to New York, and the transvestite colonial governor, Lord Cornberry, said, you can't preach in New York. McAmey knew that was wrong because the Bill of Liberties from England authorized him to preach. He knew that was wrong, and so he went ahead with his sermon, and Lord Cornberry had him thrown in jail. And he was in jail for a length of time, had a trial, vindicated himself, was released, became a champion for freedom of religion, and he published his sermon called A Good Conversation, and the text of his sermon was Acts 5.29, we must obey God rather than men. Jesus puts it this way when asked a question about taxes. In Matthew 22, verse 21, you know this passage of scripture, where they ask him whether he should pay taxes, and it's a trick question. They're trying to get Jesus in trouble, and the response of Jesus is to give to Caesar what is Caesar's and render to God what is God's. In other words, your obligation to God is your highest obligation and you have to make sure that you're obedient to your Lord. A final point that I'll make from Romans 13 is that all authorities should be in subjection to Christ. And so Romans 13 tells us that God is the one who establishes authorities. God is the one who makes rulers his servants. He establishes them. He gives them their charge. He establishes the rules. 
they need to be responsive to him. If you want to look at the rules, you can see a good summary in verses 8 through 10 of Romans 13. In verses 8 through 10, you will find a summary of the second table of the law. Not everything is there, but most of it's there. The commandments summarized. You don't commit adultery. You don't murder. You don't steal. You don't bear false witness. These are the kinds of things that civil magistrates everywhere are supposed to enforce. People shouldn't be allowed to kill each other, steal from one another. God establishes them, charges them, establishes the rules. But human governments, as we saw in Psalm 2, like to rebel against God and like to rebel against the Messiah. In Psalm 2, we read about the great rebellion and the great conspiracy against the Lord. Psalm 2, verses 1 through 3, Why do the nations rage, and the people plot a vain thing, and the kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed? Notice who all is involved in this great conspiracy. The kings of earth, the judges of earth, the nations and the peoples, there is a comprehensive worldwide rebellion against the standard of God, and it is called sin. But then notice that the Lord says, verse 6, He has set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And the Lord promises that his Son, his only begotten Son, will rule the earth. And then there is a call to the kings of earth and the judges of earth to submit to the Son and to kiss the Son lest they perish in the way. Psalm 2 is a really powerful song, psalm about the rebellion of the people and the need to submit to the Lord. Let me read for you a couple of verses from Acts 4, because this psalm was on the minds of the apostles as they dealt with the authorities of their day. And so the apostles being released from prison went to the church, Acts 4, verse 24, When they heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord. And I don't know if that's one person speaking and everybody else was saying, we're with you on that, or if there's a liturgical form here where they automatically say or pray this collectively, but they raised their voices to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them. Quoting Psalm 146. 
who by the mouth of your servant David has said, quoting Psalm 2, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things and the kings of earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his Christ? And so the apostles, collectively speaking, identified the rebellion of Psalm 2 as taking place at the time of Christ. Verse 27, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now one final note of consolation here is that the rebellion against the Messiah, indeed the death of the Messiah accomplished to the hands of wicked people, only accomplished the purpose of God, whatever the Lord had determined ahead of time to do, no matter what happens in our world, it is not outside the sovereign control of our God. All authorities should be in subjection to Christ. Indeed, as we look at the teaching of Scripture, we find over and over again that despite the conspiracy of man, Christ shall have dominion. I'll read for you a couple of representative passages. Colossians 1.16 For by him all things were created that are in heaven and that are on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created through him and for him. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 24 and 25. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. And Matthew 18, excuse me, Matthew 28, verse 18. Matthew 28, 18. <clears throat> and Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go there and make disciples of all nations. Well, I've laid out for you principles of authority from Romans 13. And let me add, by way of application, principles of submission. Things, hopefully, that will be helpful to you. Principles of submission. First, respect authority. Spheres of authority are established by God. Respect for authority flows from the fifth commandment. We're told to honor father and mother and 
We honor leaders in other spheres of society. Growing up, we were always taught to call our grown-ups, the adults, Mr. and Mrs. and Sir and Ma'am. I, I guess we were told that was kind of good manners and being polite, but there is a respect for authority in that math method of address. The scripture has serious penalty for anyone who would curse a king or curse a priest or curse parents. Some uh, years ago, I was driving to school with some of the children as we were coming around the corner. We saw an LUPD car kind of parked back in the corner watching for speeders. And I said, look out, folks. I think Donut Boy is going to try to pinch you, just kind of a general warning, you know, as I was driving along. And then I said to the kids, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have said that. You know, our security officers, our peace officers do a wonderful job, and that was probably disrespectful. I should have referred to him as Mr. Donut. <laughs> and then the kids told me that I should try a lot harder. I still wasn't getting the message. Uh, I, I just throw that out there as a, as a little story. We should be respectful to those who have positions of authority. I, I sometimes see a bumper sticker, and the bumper sticker says, question authority. And, and I always want to say, well, okay, if you tell me to, I guess I will. It seems to be a kind of an authoritative pronouncement from that bumper sticker that doesn't quite fit the message. We respect authority. Second, we follow the rules. Romans 13 reminds us that we are submissive and obedient for conscience sake, or even just to avoid the punishment. We should follow the rules. Peter gives these instructions, same instructions in 1 Peter 2, 13 through 17, as we saw rules for citizens or folks in other spheres of authority. Years ago, when I was at a different institution, I had a couple of students, and they were basketball players, and they were kind of cut-ups, and they'd sit in the back and talk all the time, and just kind of wore me out. And so I finally decided I was going to go talk with them and tell them to stop doing that. Uh, one guy was named Chuck, and the other guy, I've forgotten his name, but everyone always called him Squiggy. So I decided I was going to go and talk to Chuck and Squiggy. So I talked first to Squiggy, and I said, you know, you and Chuck are in back, and you're talking a lot. It's distracting, and I, I don't think you're learning much. And Squiggy said, no, they weren't doing that. And if anybody was doing it, it was Chuck. He wasn't doing it, and just not responsive at all. And then I went to talk to Chuck, and I said, you know, you and Squiggy are sitting in back. You're talking all the time, and it's distracting, and I don't think you're learning much. And Chuck said, I'm sorry, sir. There's no excuse. It won't happen again. And I said to Chuck, was your dad military? He said, yes, sir. <laughs> and you know, the next class period, Chuck came and he sat right in the front row, right in front of me. He left Squiggy behind in the back and he sat right up front to use the language of the catechism. He was purposing 
and endeavoring to walk in no obedience. And I had checked for a number of courses, always sat right up front, pen poised, ready to take notes, ready to follow the rules. Third, check the book. God is the one who establishes authority, and so check the owner's manual. I've mentioned that in Romans 13, verses 8 through 10, we find a quick summary of the second table of the Decalogue. One of the last times I preached here, we looked at Deuteronomy 17, verses 18 through 20, which gave the instructions for a king at their inauguration or coronation, so that when the king took office, he was to sit down with the law of God, and he was to write it out, and he was to have it with him, and he was to read it every day, and he was to obey it. In other words, God's covenant, God's book, God's law, the king was supposed to master. Let me give another example of this, this from Deuteronomy 27. In Deuteronomy 27, instructions were given to Israel as they came into the land. It is again a reminder that people would not forget the word of the Lord, that they would be able to check the book. Deuteronomy 27, verses 1 through 3. Now Moses, with the elders of Israel, commanded the people, saying, Keep all the commandments which I command you today, and yet shall be on the day when you cross over the Jordan to the land which the Lord your God is giving you, that you shall set up for yourselves large stones and whitewash them with lime, and you shall write on them all the words of this law when you have crossed over that you may enter the land which the Lord your God is giving you. So when you come into the land, make sure that you've got a nice background and then you write out God's word so that everybody can see it and they know what the book says. Joshua 8. Joshua 8, verse 32. Joshua 8, 32 and there in the presence of the children of Israel, he wrote on the stones a copy of the law of Moses, which he had written. Then all Israel with their elders and officers and judges stood on either side of the ark before the priests and the Levites who bore the ark of the covenant of the Lord, the stranger as well as he who was born among them. Half of them were in front of Mount Gerizim and half of them in front of Mount Ebal as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded before that they should bless the people of Israel. And afterward he read all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings according to all that is written in the book of the law. And there was not a word of all that Moses had commanded, which Joshua did not read before all the assembly of Israel. In other words, the word of God was proclaimed, the word of God was published, and people would be able to check the book. We have a new speaker of the house. 
I didn't know anything about him until he was named Speaker of the House, but he identified himself as a Bible-believing Christian, and then I found out that he was a Liberty University faculty member, online faculty member, and he posed this question or responded to this question, what do I believe? And he said, pick up a Bible and read it. That's my worldview. Now, I don't know much about him, whether you know he's a good guy or not. I expect that he is. Don't know. But I really like that answer. The Word of God contains my worldview. Check the book. I'd also add that you might consult the past. The United States has a marvelous history of people who were God-fearing and conversant with the principles of the Bible. There's a wonderful book by Daniel Dreisbach entitled Reading the Bible with the Founding Fathers. Dreisbach is a Presbyterian elder. He's a believer up in Northern Virginia. He said, he told me that he started this book as a Sunday school lesson or Sunday school series in his PCA church up in Virginia. And he started by saying, okay, how much of the Bible did George Washington quote? What did he know? How much of the Bible did Ben Franklin quote and did he know? In other words, he was trying to determine the degree of biblical literacy amongst the founders. And he said that most of the historians who addressed this question had it all wrong because they said these people didn't know the Bible only because they didn't have a chapter and verse attached to their biblical illusions. As he went through this, he found over and over again people referencing the Bible. Did they believe all of it? That would be a whole other question. But they certainly knew the Bible, and they used biblical language which people of the time would understand. And one of the things referenced by many of the founders concerning their hopes for the United States is that people would be able, every man, to sit under his own fig tree and under his own vine, and there would be none to make them afraid. But if you look at that passage in context, it has a marvelous eschatological vision of the conversion of the nations, Micah 4, verses 1 through 5, a vision of the nations streaming to Mount Zion to be taught the law of God, Micah Forest prophecy is very much like Isaiah 2. And that different people might have their own gods, but we shall call upon the name of the Lord. And finally, my last point, and this is my most important point under our principles of submission, trust in God. Our age is a statist age where people seek to empower the state and seek salvation from the state. 
The civil government was established for certain ends, but it can't save you. Only Jesus Christ can save you. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ who gave his life and shed his blood for us. Let me read for you three passages of scripture in closing. Psalm 146. Psalm 146, verses 3 through 6. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to his earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Don't put your trust in a politician. They're mortal. They die. They're impotent. They can't deliver. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea, and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever. Psalm 110. And we sang from Psalm 110 earlier in our service. Psalm 110, the most quoted Old Testament passage in the New. A Psalm of David, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Jesus Christ has been raised up and his enemies will be vanquished. Isaiah 33 verse 22 Isaiah 33 verse 22 For the Lord is our judge the Lord is our lawgiver the Lord is our king and you'll notice here that there are references to judicial and legislative and executive powers. Jehovah is our judge. Jehovah is our lawgiver. Jehovah is our king. He will save us. We don't seek salvation through the state or through a politician or through any mortal human being. Salvation comes from the Lord alone. The Lord is the one who saves the Lord with sovereign power, who governs all the nations of the earth, is the one who sent his Son to die for us, to redeem us. He is the one who saves. Let's pray. God, our Father, we live in troubled times and in perilous times. We worry about the future. We world worry about the condition of our world. We're thankful that you have established authority, that you've done so for our good. We pray that you would help us to be a submissive people, understanding that the order you have created in society is good for us.
But we're also thankful that you are the one who has established authority over all things and has given authority, all authority, in heaven and on earth to your Son, our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. We long to see the day when the nations of earth go to Mount Zion to be taught your word. Until that day, we pray that you would give to us confidence to proclaim Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that you would give to us the confidence to proclaim your word and to follow it, that we might be a people who profess your excellencies, having been called out of darkness into your marvelous light. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn with me in closing to Psalm 146a from the Maroon Psalter.